Thank you so much, Jason. Uh, evening, everyone. It's great to be with you together in this beautiful place, continuing in the book of Hebrews. And uh, it's good to see some faces returning, a number of new faces. And uh, we're going to just be reading through Hebrews 3, chapter 3, verse 1 to 14. And uh, I want to talk about persevering faith tonight, persevering faith. We came to the United States from South Africa, end of 2007. And the land of our birth um, is a beautiful land, uh, rich in so many ways, but it's a, a, a dangerous, crime-torn land. And we had experienced, together with most of the members of our church, quite a lot of violent crime. So we arrived in beautiful, leafy Fullerton, Southern California, and uh, we're told that it was very peaceful, and which it is. Uh, one of the things I really wanted to do, that's part of the American dream, is get a big SUV. And uh, so one of the pastors on our staff helped me to find uh, a pretty good, clean Mitsubishi Montero. And uh, we went and bought it from a private owner in the jewelry district, district in L.A., and uh, came into L.A., and I was like, well, this is not quite like Fullerton. And uh, anyway, bought it from a lovely Iranian jeweler and uh, drove it away, proud owner of a Mitsubishi Montero. As we drove away, I noticed that there was a Che Guevara sticker on the window. So I was like, that is uh, curious. I switched on the radio, and the radio was a private radio station that was communist. So I was like, this is even more interesting drove home, parked it outside, went inside, and I was kind of starting to get a little bit of that sort of South African nervousness. And uh, next thing, just heard an almighty explosion. And my mind just raced, and I was just like, it's a car bomb. He sold us a car with a car bomb. And I ran outside, and there was the Disney fireworks. <laughs> it was not a car bomb, it was the Disney fireworks. My wife and I still chuckle because we arrive pretty stressed out and pretty fearful and uh, are so grateful to live in a place where we do that is relatively safe. But quite quickly, we, we realized that the battle for faith was still very real. Just because you have a low crime rate in your neighborhood and a police force that generally works really well doesn't mean that you're not struggling. And about a year uh, in, I said to my wife, I, I feel like the enemy is a different kind of snake here. Uh, it's like in South Africa, uh, the enemy came like a, like a viper. You know, you would, we, we experienced violent crime, hijacking, all sorts of stuff, and, and new people that had, had been killed, and so there was the sense of like he could strike with a deadly strike at any moment. I said, you know, living in Fullerton, California, feels a little bit more like the enemy is a boa constrictor. Just slowly squeezes the life out of you. And uh, the more I've shared that with Californian Christians, the more they just nod their heads and say, like, yeah, that's it, that's it. And so this topic of persevering faith is absolutely vital. Uh, each one of us uh, that have put our faith in Jesus uh, have a target on our back in many ways. 
uh, we know that he who be began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it, but that doesn't mean that we're not following Jesus under pressure. And uh, Hebrews 3 is a wonderful passage about Moses and uh, Jesus being the better Moses. Uh, we talked about how uh, the great themes of the book of Hebrews is that God has spoken through the prophets, God has spoken through angels, God has spoken through Moses and through the law, but God has finally spoken through His Son. And so Hebrews is comparing Jesus to angels, to the prophets, to Moses, saying that they are clues, they are shadows, they are types of Jesus. They're fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is better than all. And so tonight, we're going to look at persevering faith through the life of Moses and the wilderness generation. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hold fast our confidence and our boasting. What is it? To do that. Jesus is introduced here as the apostle and high priest of our confession. Apostle simply means sent one. We need a word sent from God. Jesus was that living word sent from God, but he was also the way to God. He was not just the apostle, he was the high priest. He opened up a way. And the writer of the Hebrews says that his body was like the tent, curtain, torn, as, as his body was ripped on the cross. The temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. So he was not just an apostle sent from God. He was the priest, high priest, making a way to God so that unholy people could come to a holy God. That's a wonderful thing. And it carries on to say we are to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest, of our confession. We heard about the daughter who was baptized today. How wonderful. Everyone who is baptized as a believer makes a confession of faith. 
that I believe Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. And the writer of the Hebrews, as we said last night, we don't know exactly who it was, but he was writing to Jewish converts that made a confession that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus, you are Savior, and Jesus, you are Lord. And that began to cost them. They began to feel the boa constrictor of resistance, much more strong than we feel. We feel a growing animosity towards the gospel. We feel an erosion of religious liberty. That's why Hebrews is such a powerful book, because they felt it much more intensely. And so the writer of the Hebrews is saying, we need to consider Jesus, who was faithful. And we made a confession, but actually making a confession, it's fantastic, that's what saves you, but persevering faith, holding fast our boasting, is an evidence that we will be saved in the end. Hebrews is a, is a book that welcomes us to consider Jesus deeply. I think very often we do not persevere because we've made a confession of Jesus, but we haven't considered him deeply. We haven't counted the cost of what it is to follow him. We haven't considered a life of suffering and a life of joy. It's almost like the boat of our life has an anchor that sort of drags along the bottom of the sea floor. And because it is not deeply considered, we are tossed to and fro by circumstance, by wind, by wave of doctrine, by culture. And the call to consider Jesus deeply in persevering faith is to lock the anchor of our faith deeply into who he is and the way he lived. Will you consider him deeply with me tonight. Amen? And as we do that, I want us to ask a few questions about doubt and the wrestle of faith. What does it mean to doubt well? What is the difference between doubt and the hardness of heart in unbelief? What does it mean to come through seasons that feel like wilderness seasons? like the people of Israel under Moses? How do we persevere in faith in wilderness seasons? Even looking back at these last two years, what does that look like? I want to acknowledge as we wrestle with persevering faith that Jesus was always merciful to doubters. And that's good news for you and I. Think of Thomas, merciful to doubters. Think of most of the disciples. But I also want us to acknowledge that doubt in our culture has become quite trendy. It's become quite trendy to be skeptical and to deconstruct and even to deconvert. So I want us to, to realize that doubt can be healthy, but doubt can be really unhealthy, especially in wilderness seasons when we feel the boa constrictor wrapped around us. Joshua Ryan Butler, friend of mine, wrote recently, he says, while there are realities like church hurt, hypocrisy, poor teaching, unanswered prayer that genuinely cause us to doubt, we must also acknowledge that doubt is hip. The desire to fit in with the cultural ethos of our moment is strong, and that's why 
So many deconversion stories sound like everyone's reading off the same script. It's well-worn cliches signaling conformity to accepted norms. Celebrities are, are leading the charge in doubt. There's influence to be had, platforms to be built, money to be made. It gets Rob Bell on Oprah. It bolsters Glennon Doyle's book sales. Let's Red and Link host Nacho Libra and Harry Potter on their popular YouTube channel. Doubt is hip. So we live in a culture where it's actually popular to doubt. And the Bible gives us a way through where we can dignify doubt, but we also need to be aware that it can turn into hardness of heart. So what does it mean to persevere in these wilderness seasons? I love Spurgeon, and one of the things Spurgeon said was that it was through perseverance that the snail reached the ark. And Moses is nothing if not a pattern and a model of perseverance. Persevering faith is, is vital and it's, and it's possible in a world of doubt. So we're going to see three big ideas in this text about persevering faith. And the first is that persevering faith considers inheritance. It considers inheritance. Uh, verse 4 says, now, now Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ was faithful over God's house as a son. So the writer of the Hebrews is, is, is speaking with affection. He's not speaking harshly. He says, dear holy brothers and sisters, you who share in the heavenly calling. He, he knows them intimately like family. He, he carries with empathy the constriction they feel as Christians, the pressure they are under. And he wants them to consider Jesus deeply in light of their national hero, Moses. And we must remember, and we can remember, I think, that it was, was Moses who, who led the people of Israel with such courage, calling to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might worship God in the wilderness. It was Moses who led them out through the Passover and to this impasse with the Egyptian army behind and the Red Sea in front and stretched out his staff and saw God do this mighty, miraculous saving work in the Red Sea. Moses was honored as Israel's national hero. There's no dishonor towards Moses here. In fact, the word servant is, is the word in, in, um, in the original therapon. Very often, uh, the New Testament uses the word for servant, doulos, which means bond slave. But, but here he doesn't use that. He uses the word therapon, which is like the head waiter, the head of the house, almost like Joseph was in Potiphar's house. So he is honoring this national hero. But he's saying, now, now consider Moses in the light, of, sorry, consider Jesus in the light of, of Moses. In other words, Moses matters, but, but Jesus matters more and, and, and why why Moses do you think? Why Moses? Well, as I said last night, at that time Rome had offered civil liberty to Jews, but not to Christians at that time. So there was a temptation to for Christians to take off un uniform and mingle with crowd and to say, let's hide back under Moses. Because at least there's some 
liberty for them. There's no liberty for Christians. And so, in many ways, they were leaving faith in Jesus and putting inordinate faith in Moses. So he's using this hero to say, he is great, but Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, it says. And, and we say, well, well, how? How was he faithful? Well, firstly, he was faithful in duration. I, whenever I look at the life of Moses, I always feel so impatient, don't you? I mean, 40 years growing up in Pharaoh's palace. Hebrews 11, I love this about Moses. It says, by faith, Moses refused the pleasures of Egypt. I mean, he, he grew up in great privilege. And there was a time after 40 years where he saw Israel being oppressed, and he actually refused his privilege. Very often when we think about faith, we think, well, well faith is to inherit good things in this life. And yes, God provides amazingly. Moses, by faith, refused the pleasures of Egypt. Isn't that challenging? Challenging to me. Sometimes we, by faith, we actually refuse a job offer or we refuse a deal by faith because it's, it's not pleasing to God. God is not against good deals or, or promotions, but sometimes by faith we actually say, no, 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 I'm not going to take a, a shortcut. I'm going to persevere by faith and take the long way around because it's the righteous way around. And Moses was a model of that. Moses was a model of persevering 40 years in the palace, 40 years in Midian. He began leading as an 80-year-old. I love the fact that we've got some over 50-year-olds in the room. I count myself in your presence by two weeks. And it's, it's, it's very easy in kind of the second half to slow down and say, oh, we're passing the baton of faith to the younger generation. Moses began his ministry at 80. And so for me and my impatience, whenever I put my, the timeline of my life against the timeline of Moses' life, consider Moses. Oh, he was patient. How else is he honored? Well, after 80, he wrestled with these grumbling Israelites who saw God's incredible power, amazing provision, and yet were just doubting and divisive and grumbling, and yet he persevered with them. What a guy. What a guy. And then he gets to Mount Nebo, the promised land Canaan promised to him, and he's not able to go in. And yet he's still faithful. There's one of the most beautiful little verses in all of Scripture, where Moses looks out over the promised land from Mount Nebo, and God says, you're not going to go in. And it says, and the Lord buried Moses. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord buried Moses. This honored therapon, faithful in all God's house. I want something of Moses' faithfulness, his persevering faith, don't you? Amen? And so there's an honor of Moses, but then there's the, this, this contrast between Moses and Jesus. And here's the, here's the big contrast. It says, verse 4, Moses was faithful as a servant over God's house, but Jesus was faithful as a son over God's house. What's the difference between a servant and a son? The primary difference is inheritance. In other words, Moses was able to bring the people out of slavery, 
but he was not able to bring them in. Jesus, and, and Jesus' name, Yeshua, actually makes us think of who? Joshua. Jesus was not just a Moses. He was like a Moses and a Joshua. He was able to take his people out, not through the blood of a Passover lamb, but through his own blood, take them out of slavery, out from under the wrath of God. But Jesus, as a son, is able to take us in. You say, Alan, what are you going on about? We've got to see this, that persevering faith considers inheritance. In other words, Jesus did not just save you out of something. He saved you into something. And what Jesus saves you and I into is actually more beautiful and more powerful than what he saved us out of. And one of the reasons we do not persevere in faith is that we only are aware of what Jesus has saved us out of. And what he saved us out of, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing that he's rescued us from sin, rescued us from separation from God. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing, as we sang, that he's redeemed us by his own precious blood. He's forgiven us. He's purified us. But he has brought us in to a promised rest. And I think so often we do not persevere because we don't realize that Jesus is bringing us in. What do I mean by, by in? What do I mean by in? Well, of course, an inheritance includes heaven. And that's what Hebrews 3 says. You who share in a heavenly calling. One of the primary pictures of Canaan coming in is, is heaven. But do you know that it's more than that? Do you know that salvation is more than just life after death? And that is fantastic. Actually, the inheritance Jesus saves us into includes life before death. I have come that they might have life and have it life abundantly. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but actually life begins before the grave. And so what are some of the aspects of our inheritance that are worth persevering for? Well, one of them is, we see here, the family of God. Part of our inheritance is the family of God. Holy brothers and sisters. That actually, we do not just find a father, we find a family. And that family encourages us, that family exhorts us, that family sometimes disciplines us. But there's an incredible inheritance in the family of God. But there's also the inheritance of reward. There's the inheritance of reward. But actually, there's a well-done, good and faithful servant. You know, heaven will include a reward. And even in this life, Hebrews says that it's through faith and patience that we inherit what is promised. There's an incredible reward just for walking faithfully in these days. I want you to think just for a moment, I'm going to press pause and ask you, especially those of you who've walked some miles with Jesus, when you look back, what is some of the inheritance that you've come into for persevering? I'm going to ask you in a moment, I'm going to give you an example in our life. I said last night that we've led for 15 years this one church, 
And uh, one of the things that we've really felt God speak to us is that our inheritance is to plant gospel-centered churches all over the Southland, Southern California. That's why we call ourselves Southlands. And actually, we are not a young church. We uh, are a church that's uh, 55 years old. And uh, before we got here, the church just started multiplying. So we never wanted to grow to be a mega church, but actually we have multiplied 10 times in the last 15 years. We've planted from Fullerton to Chino to San Clemente, all as far as Thailand, Texas, North Carolina. And there's an inheritance for us there. Whenever one of my friends leading one of these churches comes back and says, man, we, we baptized all these people. Uh, I've got a friend, Donnie, who leads a church in his hometown in North Carolina, and they uh, are seeing many people get free from addiction to drugs in the Outer Banks. And I'm just saying, that's part of our inheritance. That's why it's worth just being faithful little by little. And I'm so thankful for people in the past that just didn't give up on that vision to multiply these little points of light in the Southland. Let me press pause. Uh, a couple of you, hear from a couple of you, when you look back, even through wilderness seasons, why are you glad you didn't give up? Why are you glad that you persevered? What are some of the inheritance? We know the inheritance is God. It's heaven. It's the family of God. But we, we see these little glimpses like, like bunches of fruit in the promised land where we go, I'm so glad I didn't give up. That mom who baptized her, her daughter, that's part of your inheritance. It's incredible. Give me a couple of hands. When you look back and you go, I'm so glad. Yes, at the back. Absolutely. Is that David? David, welcome. Vineyard buddy. Some others. Absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. A couple of others. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Some others? Yeah. Absolutely. Huge. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I've... Yes. Amazing. Amazing. So persevering faith considers inheritance, that Jesus doesn't just take us out like Moses, he takes us in like Joshua. Secondly, we see here that persevering faith is evidence of salvation. It's evidence of salvation. Verse 5, we are his house if we hold fast our confidence, and our boasting and hope. So there's a condition here. We are His house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting. So verse 7 to 14 is a, is a summary of the wilderness generation, and it's not very, very complimentary, right? Do not harden your hearts 
as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test. Therefore, I was provoked by that generation. They always go astray. They've not known my ways. We, we know that the wilderness generation was given as a warning for us. And here's the warning. Hear me out. The wilderness generation saw the power of God and the provision of God. I mean, it was breathtaking. Manna from heaven, water from the rock, the angel of death passing over just because the blood of the lamb was on the doorposts. Red Sea opening wide. And yet they grumbled, they tested, they went astray in their hearts. Oh, Lord, have mercy. It is a, a warning. The book of Hebrews is primarily an encouragement. Consider Jesus. In other words, our salvation doesn't come from considering ourselves. It, it comes from considering Jesus. It's His obedience. It's His finished work. But there are about three moments in the book of, of Hebrews where the writer says, okay, now consider yourself. And are you a little bit like the wilderness generation. Miracles can drop our jaw, but not necessarily soften our heart. I, and I've found in my life, and we've seen some pretty amazing miracles, but they're not the silver bullet. I think very often we go, oh, but God, if, if I just saw your power, then I'd never ever doubt. I'd never go astray. Well, how about the wilderness generation? I mean, they saw more power, more provision than any generation, and yet they hardened their heart. Miracles are amazing, but they're not a guarantee that we will persevere. There's something else. Amen? Now, this is quite a warning, and I don't want to get into big theological debates here, but the Bible, and particularly in this verse 5, is, is saying that you are only saved if you persevere to the end. But then there's the promise, if you are truly saved, you will persevere to the end. You are His house if you hold fast your boasting and your confidence to the end. Persevering faith is not an optional extra. It's evidence that we are saved. So in other words, the confession of faith at baptism, you are saved. But we know that there are those that saw this moment of power and man, we were just singing just the right Chris Tomlin song and I came up to the front and responded to Jesus. It's not for us to say whether they're saved or not. You can be saved in a moment of confession. But actually, what God is looking for is a life of persevering faith to the end. You are His house if you hold fast as boasting to the end. And I mean, we would be naive to think that every single person that makes a profession of faith is saved to the end. You and I each have family and friends that have drifted away, hardened their heart, deconstructed, deconverted. So I'm not wanting to decrease that moment of confession. It is stunning. We are saved by confessing. But actually, you are His house if you hold fast your boasting to the end. What I'm not saying is this. I grew up in a church where there was no security of salvation. It was a holiness church, and we didn't really understand the gospel. I think that most of us were trying to save ourselves by good works and holiness. And so I grew up with an uncertain faith, and if I 
doubted or if I sinned, I'd be going, oh, am I going to hell? Am I going to hell? Thank God for the gospel and for people who preach the gospel that actually I'm saved not by my obedience, but by Jesus' obedience. I'm saved not by my good works, but by His good works. Amen? And, and, and I'm so grateful for the gospel that actually set me free from the fear of losing my salvation. I want to say your salvation is not hanging by a thread. You are deeply loved and you are tightly held by Jesus. When he cried out, it is finished, he was saying, you never have to work for salvation. It's salvation by grace and through faith. Amen? Sola gratia, sola fide. Thank God for the reformers. But, but, some of us, and particularly the church, I would say, in Southern California or California, has kind of embraced a greasy grace. Where it's like, well, I made my profession of faith, so I'm good. I'm good. I got my fire insurance. And actually, verse 5 says, I beg to differ. You are his house if you hold fast your confidence and your boasting. And so that is actually there to put a little bit of fear and reverence in us. Not paranoia that I'm going to lose my salvation, but just a sense of going, hey, I mean, am I following Jesus? Have I gone astray? Has my heart got hard? And there's this moment, I believe, where we do a faith audit of saying, how is my perseverance level in faith? Of course, profession of faith is important, vital for salvation, but persevering faith is evidence of salvation. Do you know, in 15 years of pastoring in Orange County, I have never had someone come up to me and say, please pray for, actually, sorry, I've had one person come up to me and say, please pray for me. I'm worried that I've sinned and lost my salvation. It just doesn't happen anymore. I grew up where we were all worried that we'd lost our salvation. Now it's just like, oh, no, of course I'm saved. I mean, why would Jesus not want to save me? I mean, I'm so cool. And actually, Hebrews is supposed to put a little bit of reverence in our hearts or a lot to go, hold on, let me not abuse the grace of God. Let me not get into greasy grace. This is costly grace. Can I get a little Presbyterian amen? <laughs> Finally, persevering faith is a communal project. It's a communal project. You, you're saying, okay, all right, well, I mean, I feel like I might be running out of gas. How do I make sure that I hold fast my confidence and my boasting to the end? I'm asking that question. I think all of us asked that question in the last two years. Oh, Lord, we're, I'm running out of faith gas. Please, Lord. I love the fact that it begins here, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in your heavenly calling. It's the inheritance of the family of God, that we don't persevere alone. Faith is not the story of the solo athlete. In the words of my friend Donnie Griggs, lone rangers in faith are dead rangers. This is not lone ranger faith. We need holy brothers and sisters, amen? We share in a heavenly calling. One of the great inventions of California is the carpool. When I took my Mitsubishi Montero to the carpool, I was like, this is like heaven. Uh, scripture describes faith 
as carpool Christianity. You go further and faster together. And I think very often we go, I I can do this alone. No, 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 no. You can't do this alone. We are in it together. So verse 12 carries on that theme of the communal project. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, even while it is still today. I love the fact that it says, holy, brothers and sisters. I think very often when we read that holy, we're thinking without any moral defect. And when we think that, we actually rob ourselves of the gift of communal faith. This this holiness that the writer of, of Hebrews is talking about is not congratulating them for being morally perfect. It's talking about something that has been conferred upon them by Jesus. They are saints. They are set apart. To be holy is not to be morally perfect. It's to be set apart. A holy nation. One of the best ways you and I persevere is we realize that other people are struggling with the same things we are struggling with. And when we think our brothers and sisters are holy, in other words, they are perfect without defect, we rob ourselves of the beauty of just opening up our lives and confessing not just sin, but doubt and weakness and fear. What a wonderful thing. I have a men's group on every Wednesday. We've been getting together for two years. And you know, one of the things as a pastor is that there's this pressure to have it all together. But God has just given me this this group, and some of them are leaders, some of them are not, but just trusted brothers. And there's times when we will lament, and times when we will confess our doubt or our lack of good prayer life or tension in the the home or worry about our kids, etc. And the relief of going, oh, I'm not alone here. C.S. Lewis says, friendship begins when two people share honestly and go, oh, I'm not the only one. Isn't there that incredible relief when you share with a holy brother and sister and realize they're not that holy? And then you begin to exhort one another, confess your sins and your weaknesses. And then verse 12 Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. What is the difference between doubt, genuine doubt, and evil, unbelieving heart? I have to say I struggle with this phrase. Because when I think of evil, I don't think of unbelief. I mean, I think of child abusers. I think of terrorists. They are evil. But unbelief? Come on. I mean, that's not evil. It's just me wrestling with doubt. Well, I would say this. The difference between doubt and evil unbelief is this. In the first, and God's got so much grace for this, you're just genuinely doubting your beliefs. God, I I believe this, but man... I prayed this and it didn't quite work out. This this person that I've been praying for for years, 
to be healed of cancer, they, they died. I mean, you're not human if you don't have some doubts over that. We in our church, God has, has given us the incredible grace of seeing three to four people miraculously healed of cancer. I mean, third stage cancer where the doctors just sent them home to die and God has miraculously healed them. But we've also seen people die of cancer. Miles, who's like my son, had his father, one of our pastors, die of cancer. And that, of course, cause, causes great grief and great doubt. But when it hardens into unbelief, you're not just doubting your beliefs, you are believing your doubts. That's the difference. Where you harden and you say, I don't understand this stuff. It doesn't make any sense. So I'm actually now believing my, my, my doubts. I'm hardening my heart to believe that God is not good. He's not sovereign. He's not kind. That is what this warns against. And the family of God is there to help us keep our hearts soft. Help us to say, yeah, I know life doesn't completely always make sense. But let's remember, let's not forget the goodness of God. Let's, let's count our blessings. Let's bring our wrestles to Him. Let's experience His presence again, even though we don't understand, but, but His presence is so good. There's just something about sitting under the preaching of the Word of God and being in the presence of God, taking communion that keeps our hearts soft, keeps them from hardening into believing our doubts. I believe in Christian counseling. I go to a Christian counselor every month. But the best kind of therapy for me is sitting under the preached Word of God, breaking bread with the people of God, singing praises with the people of God, pouring out our heart with the people of God. That is what keeps our hearts soft. One more, one more word about exhorting. This word but exhort one another. I want to ask you, are you exhortable? Because it's one thing to have someone put their arm around your shoulder and comfort you and encourage you. I mean, encouragement is so wonderful. We need that. But exhortation is a, is a little bit different. Exhortation is, come on now. You are slowing down. You are giving up. Don't. Persevere. Do you have someone in your life who can exhort you? Or do you hold them at arm, arm's length? Because one of the things that it says here that happens in our heart when we harden it is that we get into the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. It, it deceives us. Early on in our marriage, I got into golf. Do I look like a golfer to you? I don't know. But I got so into it. We, we grew up in a coastal town. We moved to Johannesburg, which was far from the ocean. I was like, what am I going to do on my day off? Well, I took up golf. And, you know, I'm just like, I don't want to do a thing badly. I don't want to be a hacker on the golf course, you know. And uh, so I was just on the driving range like every day. I joined a country club. was getting my, my handicap down. And I was absolutely hooked. And my wife was pregnant with our second uh, child. And... Um, what actually happened was she went into labor when I was out on the golf course. It wasn't pretty. I raced home. I got there in time, but it, it, I was a little bit in the dog box. And uh, around that time, a friend of mine 
fellow pastor came to me and he exhorted me. And he said, you know what, Alan? If you carry on with this golf like you're carrying on, you're going to end up in divorce. I was so offended. I was so shocked. Who does this guy think he is? So I go home to my wife and says, Renell, you know what Ashley said about me? He said that this golf, if I carry on, I'm going to end up in divorce. Who does he think he is? What do you think about that? She was like, well. (laughs) She said, not divorce, but it is problematic. It is problematic. He might have overstated it, but actually he had a kernel of truth. And I hung up my golf clubs. I did. I'm grateful. I saved a lot of money. (laughs) I saved a lot of time. Surfing is a lot cheaper. I'm not hating golfers. If you can handle golf, it's excellent. Beautiful sport, beautiful sport. Just not my sport. But I needed exhortation at that time. My heart had grown idolatrous about golf. Do you have people around you that you can go... They're not just there for my comfort and my encouragement. They are there for my exhortation. It's those people, often in the moment, it doesn't feel good. But it's those people, often, that you look back and they go, they kept me from hardening my heart. Don't close your heart to those kinds of people. They're not always the big, you're just so great, you're just so gifted. It's the people who are just saying, hey, man, I love you, but there's this thing that I'm a little bit nervous of. Let me exhort you. Let me spur you on to love and good deeds. I'm coming into land here. Ultimately, while perseverance is a communal project, what is our confidence that we will persevere to the end? What is our boasting? If you hold fast your boasting to the end, it's not actually in community. It's not in my own muscle and my own will. Ultimately, my boasting is in Christ and Christ alone. We persevere because Jesus persevered. For the joy set before him, it says, Jesus endured the cross and scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus finished his race. And because we are in his hands, we will finish if we keep our hearts soft to Him. That's our confidence and our boasting. So let's keep in mind that there is an inheritance worth persevering for. Jesus has not just saved us out of something. He saved us into something. And it is glorious, our future in heaven, but actually here on this earth, we inherit the kingdom through faith and patience. Dear brothers and sisters, persevere for it. You will not regret persevering in faith. But do it together. Don't do it alone. Amen? Jesus, thank you so much that you persevered. We thank you for the life of Moses, this therapon, this great servant in your house. But we say, Jesus, you are better than Moses because you didn't just rescue us out of slavery. You bring us in. And we thank you for this great inheritance worth persevering for. Lord, I pray, along with these brothers and sisters, that you would help us to be patient. Lord, I confess my impatience. Lord, in this culture, this microwave culture, we hate when our lives buffer like our phones. 
we just get so impatient. We thank you that you are not in a rush. And I pray that you'd help us to put the lifespan of our lives against the lifespan of Moses' life and realize that you are at work. You who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. I pray, Lord, for seasoned saints here. I pray that like Moses, they wouldn't slow down. They would ask what it is to finish strong. Lord, I pray for those at the beginning of their faith race, that you'd help them to pace themselves. Lord, I really do pray that there would be a multi-generational encouragement and exhortation, that we would learn from those that have persevered over years. Thank you for the gift that is to us. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.